Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let me bring in John McGrain. He is a former national team member, a former Olympian for Canada, a guy who has done everything in the world of soccer, building, playing, coaching, all that kind of stuff. John, how are you today? I am great today. Thank you, Scott. So tell me, John, I watched that game today and half of me was elated at how well Canada played, dominating the number two team in the world, and half of me was just almost sour by the end that after all that domination, somehow Canada could not find the back of the net and could not score a goal. It, it, it felt like it was a game that was amazingly there for Canada to win and somehow it got slipped away. Yeah, you know, sometimes... Uh statistics don't apply in soccer uh, I know they do in a lot of other sports and uh, sometimes it can translate into wins and losses but uh, soccer's not quite like that in, in you know possession and so forth but on the whole on the whole if we had, if someone had said okay Canada's going to lose one nothing against Belgium in the first game of the World Cup nine out of ten people or 99 out of 100 would have said great I'll take it but at the end of the day, when we saw what could have happened, uh, you're right, half of you does feel a little bit sour. But in the big picture, it's a great result for Canada. Well, no doubt. when you say that 99% would take that, that's because probably if you did imagine a one nothing loss to Belgium, you're probably envisioning Belgium just pouring it on and Canada hanging on, but somehow keeping it to one goal. You never imagine... Canada dominating the game. And, I mean, and, and Canada, from, from Canada's goal line to Belgium's 18-yard box, Canada dominated every facet of that game. They were amazing. Well, I agree with you. I mean, uh, in retrospect, looking at the game, uh, I didn't expect that today. No. I don't think there is anybody in the world of soccer, forget about Canada, but the world of soccer, that would have thought that Canada would have completely dominated the second best team in the world. And Belgium is filled with superstars. And uh, they were just awesome. Uh, Eustachio, uh, you know, I thought was uh, just absolutely brilliant today. Uh, the, the, reason, the reason why De Bruyne uh, didn't really get a lot going on today was the job, uh, you know, that, that he did in the midfield box to box. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm elated by the fact that now I think, and I think most Canadians will agree with me on this, that I hope that this is not an aberration, that they're going to go in to play against Croatia, and if they play the same way that they did today, uh, they're going to be expecting a result, and then it'll all come down to the game against Morocco. That that is what I think most of us are hoping for, and uh, so we'll just have to wait and see until the mm. next match. Uh, ESPN put out this stat this afternoon. Now I know you, what you just said. I heard what you said about soccer and stats, and so you know, with a grain of salt, we will take this. But they said Canada is the first World Cup team since 1978 to attempt at least 20 shots and one penalty kick, and not score a goal. So stats or no stats, why is it, we've, the last World Cup Canada was in no goals. This one should have been goals, no goals. Why is it so difficult so far for Canada to find the net? Uh, because, to be honest with you, 
Canada is playing uh, since the last World Cup and then this World Cup, played against the best teams in the world. In 1986, it was France. Uh, who else were they playing against? Uh, there was a couple of other, I think the Soviet Union or something like that. And then you're talking about Belgium. And then you're, now you're going to talk about number 13 in the world, uh, uh, Croatia. And then you throw Morocco in there. Morocco is number 22 in the world. So I mean, there's no give me gimmies in the in in the World Cup. Uh, but that being said, I have to tell you, I was really disappointed by the performance of Jonathan David today. Absolutely shocking. Uh, playing for Lille, scoring a ton of goals, uh, dominating the games that he's played in, and he comes out today and nothing. Uh, th- that I think was the reason why we never got a goal today. I expected Jonathan David, uh, with all the with all the attention that some of the teams are paying uh, paying on him, uh, to be you know a big acquisition during the summer, a multi million pound acquisition during the summer, didn't do anything today to justify that. And Canada really needed him to have a game today. And, and look, I, I really believe, John, and, and you're the expert, but I really believe that had Davies scored that penalty kick uh, early on, eight minutes in, nine minutes in, Canada may have had three or four goals because the dam might have burst. Everyone just relaxes and the way it goes, you might have, it, they could have got three or four today. And, and I, I just, you wonder, you're the guy who's been on the field. When a moment like that happens, that, that is enormous in that moment, you wonder how much that gets into the other players' heads of, oh man, what do we have to do? Well, you know, there's an old saying, uh, especially when you're playing games like this at an incredibly high level or playing against teams that are like way beyond your own capabilities, that you get one chance per game to do something. And... And if you don't take that chance, your chances of getting a result are probably zero. And Canada got that chance. And when I heard when I heard that uh, Herdman was uh, was you know said that, well, we don't really pick a person who is going to take a penalty kick in a game. Uh, we leave it up to the players on the field. I was shocked by that. Absolutely shocked. That's part of your. Uh, your tactics going into the game. If there's a penalty, this is the guy that takes it. Mm. And and Jonathan David has been doing this on a regular basis for Lille. He he takes penalties. Alfonso Davies never takes penalties. Well, don't you work on this in practice? Like in hockey, and I don't want to drive everything back to hockey, but in hockey, every team practices their shootouts at the end of the game. They yeah. want guys come in, and so coaches get to see who's the guy who's got the moves. And surely you... When you're practicing this, which I'm assuming you do, you can see who confidently hits the ball and who has a good idea of what to do and who's successful. Well, it's even more simplistic than that, is that you go with the person who's taking penalties on that a too, regular basis. Of course. In professional soccer, where they're playing, Alfonso doesn't take penalties at Bayern Munich. Jonathan David takes the penalties uh, for Lille. You know, so I I would have thought, and then the fact that 
Alfonso Davies had not played a competitive game in probably a month, hadn't been doing a lot of, uh, you know, on-field and so forth, that he would have been the last person you wanted to take that, regardless of how talented he is. I think that was a strategic mistake for Canada. Mm. That should have been either Junior Hoylet. Uh, look what happened. The last penalty was taken, which was... Uh, uh, the two-two game that they that they had, uh, sorry, the the, the Japan game. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was the uh, uh, you know the the game in which uh, Cavallini took the penalty. Goalkeeper almost saved it because he tried to chip the goalkeeper. Mm, right. Uh, you know uh, he doesn't take penalties. Uh, you know uh, for uh, from from uh, Vancouver when he was playing. You should have gone to Jonathan David, let him take the clinical shot, boom your head one nothing, and then does right the you know the dam opens up. Uh, does Canada though? A lot of people have said Canada has a gripe with the officiating in that game that there should have been two more penalties. Do you agree with that? No. Okay. No, I think uh, I th- I think you, you're just looking for excuses to try and. Uh, justify that uh, maybe we should have another shot for a, to make up for the bad penalty mm. we took. No, I don't think it was uh, decisive enough to, to be able to say it should have been a second penalty. Listen, they had the chance. They missed it. Uh, they're not defined by the fact that they missed the penalty. Would it have made a difference? Yes. Uh, does it have any? In, do we, does it have any influence on how we should feel about the game? No. I. I am sitting here being a very proud Canadian saying that this team left everything on the field uh, and I hope that they continue to play with that kind of confidence uh, and energy against the second best team in the world. And if they do the same thing against Croatia, uh, Jesus, I I would not want to be sitting in the Croatian uh, dressing room right now thinking, that they've got to get they've got to get a result against Canada. Yeah, uh, we got to run. But apparently, in case anyone was wondering and watched the very beginning of that game during the anthems, apparently that was Chris Hatfield on the Canadian sideline. The astronaut was standing beside uh, John Herdman. Who knew that Chris Hatfield was now an assistant coach or water boy or masseuse or <laughs> I don't know what? But that was apparently Chris Hatfield. So good for them for bringing him out there to uh, to inspire the boys. Uh, John McGrain, thanks as always for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Take care, Scott. That is, uh, yeah. I, I was watching and I thought uh, that looks like John. That looks like Chris Hatfield, but it can't be. What's Chris Hatfield doing there? But I'm just looking, and, and apparently, yes, it really was. I thought maybe they've got a new assistant coach who looks a lot like Chris Hatfield. Don't know it was him. I'm still triple-checking on that one, but apparently it was him. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few days ago, you may have been aware, or you may have heard something, or you may have heard something about it later, that there was a big flash in the sky over the Hamilton area and a boom, and people wondered what was going on. And it turns out something had fallen from the sky, a meteorite, or at least pieces of a meteorite. Well, now some experts are saying, you know what? It might be a really fun activity to do this weekend. See if you can find pieces of it that would be very, very helpful in order to allow us to learn stuff about these kind of things. Uh, one of those people is Kim Tate. She's with the Royal Ontario Museum. She joins me now. Uh, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. 
Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I am excellent. So the first thing I heard when I heard that the suggestion was, you know, people should go out and maybe look and see if they can find pieces of this to help us. How in the world would I know what I'm looking for? Well, yeah, anytime we can get outside and look at nature, I think that's always <laughs> that's a true thing for sure. But yeah, so what we're looking for with meteorites is something called a fusion crust. So the outer part of the rock, if you think about it, it has gone through our atmosphere at a really rapid rate, burned sort of the outside of the rock. And so it creates this sort of black, glassy appearance that doesn't look like a typical earth rock. We have no processes here on our planet to do that, to make a rock look like that. So that's sort of our first telltale sign of a meteorite. So we heard, and last I understood, that the, the expectation is that this landed, or these pieces landed somewhere between Grimsby and Vineyard in that area, or Vineland, pardon me, um, in that area. But that's, that's a right. big that's a big area. Like, well, is, is there... Is there any way to know anything more specific than that? Yeah. So, I mean, what was really exciting about this fall is that it was tracked all the way in uh, from space. So uh, we haven't been able to do that many times. But unfortunately, still, just how uh, the object reacted through, you know, coming through the atmosphere would have broken apart. And just by those mechanisms they could have dropped rocks anywhere between those two areas so it is a very large area if it was a smaller area i'd be out there right now doing my search but <laughs> unfortunately uh you know i just can't be in all those different places so that's why we've put it out to the media and out to the communities to just say you know what like if you're out walking your dog or uh you know in maybe in your backyard you see something that doesn't look quite right then you know maybe just just have a good look at it and see if uh, we can put it out to the masses to to maybe find this material. By the time that it would have hit ground, do are we talking about pieces the size of a baseball or are we talking about pieces the size of a marble or do we know? Yeah, so the what's predicted based on sort of a trajectory and all of the uh, the science things that have happened uh, <laughs> while watching it, uh, they expect everything from piece size up to about a baseball size. So there is quite a size range. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a little bit of a, you know, I'd say needle in a haystack at this point, but you know, we've done crazier things. So let's just hope that uh, it gets, gets found. When you say though, that there are some pieces that are the size of a baseball with the speed this was coming in, are we, the first thing I think of, are we really lucky that this didn't hit something? Well, yeah, I mean, of course that would hurt. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it could take out a house coming at that speed, couldn't it? So we actually had a meteorite in Canada that fell, um, I guess it was probably a couple of years ago now in Golden, BC that went through a roof and landed on a lady's pillow. So this does happen. I mean, objects do hit things. (laughs) Um, You know, our planet is three quarters water. So, you know, many a times they do go into water and, you know, with, this one is potentially in Lake Ontario, but, you know, we do have some of the, the range could be on land. So, yeah, maybe there's something, you know, the last time that um, a meteor fell in Grimsby, it actually went through somebody's windshield. And they woke up in the morning, they saw the windshield broken, you know, they were mad, you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe somebody threw a rock at their car or something and they went and got their windshield replaced. And then as the news came out a couple of days later, they kind of put two and two together and realized that that actually was a meteor. So it does happen. It does hit things. But, uh, you know, I haven't heard of anybody injured or anything. And 
3.30 in the morning, most people were probably, you know, resting or at work or something. So hopefully uh, everybody's okay. And uh, that's not the case in this one. You, you mentioned a couple examples, one in BC, another one in Grimsby years ago. Part of the reason why you are interested in finding this, I assume, is because this still doesn't happen all that often. That's right. I mean, there are objects that are entering our atmosphere, but what's great about Earth is that we have a very protective atmosphere, and many of them do burn up before they would ever get to us. But yeah, every once in a while, we do, you know, get lucky, I guess, in some ways. For scientists, I'm going to say we're lucky that uh, these objects come to us for free. These are little pieces of information from our solar system that we would love to get our hands on and study. And, uh, you know, we here at the museum, we do uh, identify meteorites and we do study meteorites. We've identified almost 90 new meteorites this year, just for an example. So we're very active in this area. So anytime we can get our hands on uh, this new new samples, it's uh, always very exciting. Okay, let's talk about the study for a second. Let us say someone is walking their dog in Grimsby or Vineland and they find one of these and bring it to you. What can you learn from a meteorite when you're studying it? What are we getting from that? Sure. So if you think about these rocks are almost frozen in time. These are objects from the beginning of the solar system, 4.5 billion years ago. And rocks on Earth, um, we have a very active planet. And what happens is that we've lost a lot of our earliest records here on Earth. So honestly, the best way to study our own planet is to look at rocks from outside of our planet and understand what was happening at those earliest, earliest times in our solar system. So that's how we do it is look at uh, these space rocks. And so these are uh, random. They are coming from all different parts of our solar system. Many of them are coming from the asteroid belt. So between Mars and Jupiter, there's a whole bunch of debris there. So, you know, it's uh, it's exciting. Every rock is a little different. And, uh, you know, that's how we're going to understand our solar system is by these these types of rocks. But even if we found a, a piece of this and we cracked it in half and the middle was a perfect for lack of a better word, core sample of a past time, what does that do to help us understand us? Or or wh like what what is the information that we might get from that that would help us to better understand something? Sure. So I think as, you know, I'm a geologist and I go to school, I went to school to understand how to study rocks. That's, you know, and I think that like every rock is like a, is like a book. And we have to unlock sort of, you know, I was taught a, a language, a rock language, if you will, to uh, to look at those rocks and get its story out, you know, tell its story. And that's how I look at rocks, every rock from Earth, from space, from Mars, from asteroids. They're all very similar in, in a lot of ways. But those subtleties are what is 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 telling us how they formed, what kind of conditions, pressures, temperatures, uh, what elements were available, all those types of things are what I can do here at the museum and what my colleagues are interested in. But some people, you know, if somebody found it and they were really interested in keeping it, we completely respect that as well. And, uh, you know, I'd like to look at it, but, you know, I would certainly work with the person, uh, you know, to either study it first and then give it back or, you know, whatever they want to do. I completely respect that. Okay. Last thing about that. Um, is there now you probably you know with what you everything you've said you'd love to get your hands on this but is there value to these if someone were to find a meteorite is there a market out there for people buying these things or are they essentially just a nice rock to put on your mantle 
Yeah, no, there is a value. It depends what type of meteorite there is. You could go on eBay right now and purchase meteorites. There's plenty out there, um, you know, from all over the place. But, you know, just depending what type of meteorite it is, uh, is important. But also to get it identified as a meteorite is really important. So that would be sort of the first step um, is understanding what kind of meteorite it is. And uh, that's something that we could do here at the museum. It's an amazing thing. If you're out there, as I say, if you're out there somewhere in that area, which is where they expected it was, um, maybe this is the day to be walking with your eyes on the ground instead of up. Who knows what you might find? Uh, Kim Tate, uh, miner mineralogist, meteorite, and gem curator at the Royal Ontario Museum. Thanks so much for doing this today. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So you are uh, undoubtedly, if you've been living in this area for any period of time, you are familiar with the story of Tim Bosma. It's now a decade. Is it a decade? It's got to be. Yeah, it's it's 10 years since Tim Bosma was killed. I can't, it's stunning to think that that much time has gone by, but you, it, undoubtedly you are familiar with this story. He was an Ancaster guy who some people came to take his truck, that he, his pickup truck that he had for sale on a test drive and he was killed and then his body was incinerated. You know all the details. It's a, it was a horrendous story. It was a huge story around here. And ultimately, uh, two people, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch, were convicted of the murder and are both in prison. Now, they are both in prison for more than just the killing of Tim Bosma. Dellen Millard uh, is in jail for killing three people, Mark Smitch in for two. And so Canada had allowed, until recently, had allowed for people who are murderers of more than one people, more than one person, pardon me, consecutive life terms. You get a life sentence automatically for first degree murder. You get a life sentence with chance of parole after 24 years. Well, they changed that so that judges, so so a few years ago when there was a mass shooting in Montreal, uh, the, the shooter got 150 years, but no chance of parole for 40 years. Well, back in May, the Supreme Court of Canada looked at this and unanimously said, no, you can't do that. You can't give consecutive sentences. Everybody gets to have their chance of parole after 25 years. doesn't matter what they've done. Not a decision that has been met with applause from every corner. I want to bring in Jeff Manishin. He's a local defense lawyer. Uh, everyone knows the name Jeff Manishin. You've probably read about him from different trials, big uh, trials around and things like that. Jeff, how are you tonight? Good, Scott. How about you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. So this is one that, um, that a lot of people were cranky about when this decision was made, and now we're seeing it applied to a big case that was around here. And the reason that I think a lot of people were not happy about this was, A, we don't generally have a lot of sympathy for people convicted of murder, and a lot of people would say, go let them rot, I don't want to see them again. But two, if you've killed more than one person... The suggestion kind of is that if you can still get your probation after 25 years, every murder after the first one essentially is a freebie. That's, that's how a lot of people perceive it. Is that fair? Well, from an emotional standpoint, it's perfectly fair to say where's the additional consequence for, for additional crimes? Doesn't it, shouldn't it make a difference? And shouldn't the law provide for something extra? And so I can easily understand, as I say, from an emotional standpoint, how people would react that way. Um, the law, mind you, doesn't deal with things from an emotional standpoint. 
and judges will take a look at it and say, how is this fitting within the kind of system of justice that we mean to have and want to have within the ambit of what the Charter of Rights is meant to protect against cruel and unusual punishment, apart from issues such as fundamental justice and so forth. And it really comes down to kind of a core feature is do we say, look, we're still, however slim the sliver of hope may be, we should allow it because, Scott, the alternative is it, you have situations as they do in the States where somebody has a sentence of 200 years. Or to life. Yeah, no chance of parole. You're, you're no, in for, you know, but, yeah. but 200 years and no to, uh, from a range of 200 years to life. And you say, well, what is the point of that? But the, say, well, yeah, but every individual sentence can be all served consecutively to have it make a difference. And our court says you've only got one life. So we can't have consecutive life terms if you can't be in jail for longer than the duration of your life. And I think probably... I mean, the only comfort I could offer is to say this. From the standpoint of the effect of additional offenses of first-degree murder going towards enhancing greatly the very the very real unlikelihood of the person ever getting parole, remember, Scott, for a person on first-degree murder, so it's life and no parole eligibility for 25 years. When the person is coming up for parole eligibility, it's perfectly appropriate for the parole board to be asked to consider the fact the person has killed other people. Yes. That's not irrelevant. It's not. The, the, the problem with it that a lot of people point to, though, is to say, but every time it, it, there was some comfort for the family of the deceased, of the person who was killed, to know that you can now close this chapter of this book and you don't have to worry about this again. But now, and we've seen it with the Bernardo case, with the Frenches and with the Mahaffey's, they have to go and, well, they don't have to, but you feel an obligation to your loved one to go and to think about this again and worry that a parole board might do something crazy and you don't expect it, but you know, if you don't go and they did something, you'd regret it. So it, the idea becomes that you are now requiring the victim's family to relive this every single time that eligibility comes up. And it's a compelling, powerful counter-argument, as it were. I mean, Scott, I was around at a time where victims didn't get any input, didn't get the opportunity to be heard at the stage of a parole hearing. That's, we go back a ways for that. And the reason that, that the philosophy behind that was to say, look, victims get input at the time of sentencing. And there's no question that from the standpoint of the effect that the crime has had on the victim, the victim should have an opportunity to be able to make the court aware of that so that can be considered. Now, of course, on first-degree murder, it's automatic, like no parole eligibility for 25 anyway. At the parole stage, the issue has to do with the potential risk that the individual might pose if released to the community. It's not meant to be a second sentencing. This is the core. It is not meant to be sentencing part two. It's a completely different issue. The issue is the potential risk the person poses in the community. But over the years, the law has been changed to allow victims to have family members to have input and have an opportunity to be heard again at the parole level. But we have to maintain a measure of perspective and say, all right, they get that opportunity to be heard. How does that factor into the decision of the parole board to evaluate the person's risk if they were released into the community? Because that's the concept of parole as a form of conditional release. Okay, and certainly I respect the fact that family members of victims have want to have an opportunity to be heard. I guess I'd say from a practical standpoint, mind you, in a case such as Millard and Smith, when you have multiple homicides, in the real world I can't see the parole authority letting them out, whether the victims' families do or don't put forward their concerns. 
practically speaking. You just can't conceive of it. How could you say these people aren't a risk when they've, when they've been involved in multiple homes? I, I, and I, I, I agree with that, and yet I've talked to Tim Danson on this show about the Bernardo uh, parole hearings with Paul Bernardo, and that is certainly the belief. I mean, nobody ever believes that a parole board would let Paul Bernardo go loose. They'd be insane to do that. And yet the families feel they must participate because of the minuscule chance, as I said a moment ago, that if they ever were released, you would regret for the rest of your life that you didn't go and speak. Sure. And so that, that really brings it down to the, all, the two halves of the issue. On the one hand, the Supreme Court of Canada had to consider the basic concept of cruel, unusual punishment and determine whether or not to make somebody, if you have somebody theoretically that's 50 years of age, we're going to give them 75 years of no parole and eligibility. We're into the U.S. kind of system, consecutive sentence, a consecutive parole and eligibility terms past potentially the duration of somebody's life. And the Supreme Court says that's not how our justice system works. That's, that's contrary to the principles uh, that we want to espouse in the Charter. And the family says yes, but if you don't, if you may, if, if you don't strike down that law, if you leave that law in the books, then that will mean we won't have to attend parole hearings. Well, those are the two halves. And if you do, if you do strike it down, we have to attend parole hearings. So, so Scott, those are our two competing principles. Right. And so, could you not make an argument to say, if I'm a victim, if my child was murdered, heaven forbid, and now I have to continue to deal with this every few years rather than being able to put it behind me, could you not argue the cruel and unusual punishment that you're avoiding has been taken off the criminal and put onto me? Well, the cruel and unusual punishment is the person who's incarcerated. That's what I mean. But could no, you not you, argue you would, that... You wouldn't be able to argue that as a victim because the sentence is imposed on the accused who's convicted. That there are consequences, that there are emotionally challenging consequences for family members is something that a fan like Tim Danson could argue on behalf of victims and suggest, look, you, you should, ma- on balance, you should maintain this law because look at the effect. But remember, Scott, we'll go back to say what's the purpose of the parole hearing to begin with. Is the purpose of the parole hearing to give the family of victims an opportunity to be heard again to what end? Not for sentencing again, because that's not the issue at the parole stage. The parole stage is potential risk in the event the person returns to the community. Yes, the victim's family get the opportunity to be heard, but the issues don't exactly line up. So, you follow me on that? Yeah, so, but if, okay, I, I do. And if, though, what you've said is the chances of someone who has committed multiple murders, the, the likelihood of a parole board letting them out is minuscule, then why bother? Why, like, why leave that as an open door when, if you've done something so horrendous more than once, shouldn't we be saying, sorry, our society does not have room for you? If you kill three people... I'm sorry, I I know it probably sucks for you that you now look at an entire rest of your life locked behind bars, but there is no other option. We can't allow you back into society. I I think that, and I I can certainly see the argument that way, I don't think that our justice system wants to get to that stage of saying we're going to snuff out the possibility of somebody reforming and potentially being able to qualify for parole at the 30-year mark, at the 35-year mark. Really, at the core of it, that's the kind of thing that the Supreme Court of Canada is talking about. And so you might say, but it's minuscule, and they say yes, and we don't want to take that possibility away entirely. That's really at the core of it. And, you know, the American justice system is different. Is that just a game, then? Would we want to get to the concept of life, no possibility of parole? 
That's the way they do things. We don't operate our justice system. Is that a, is it just a game that we're playing then? If we're saying, look, we're going to take away this rule that says you can't be sent away for the rest of your life. But in reality, you're never, ever, ever going to be let out. Are we simply just playing games to keep hope alive that doesn't exist? I think that I'd like to put it a little more, let's call it meaningful from a principled standpoint, to say we're going to allow for that possibility because we think that's sufficiently important in a justice system that isn't simply about punishment, that has as its component an element of balance to allow for that possibility. Whether it is or isn't practically going to ever occur, it's not a game. We think it's a principle worth maintaining. At the core of it, that's what the, that's what the Supreme Court was saying. And there, you know, many people will say that makes sense. It's a valid, it's an admirable principle. And we will trust that the parole authorities won't make the mistake mm. when the decision comes in, because we know that the evidence of the multiple homicides will be before them. So because, it, 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 is it a, a pure kind of, uh, is it idealistic? Maybe it is. Well, because, because again, using, and I know it's the worst case example, I understand this. And so that, that always helps when you're making a case as opposed to the more complicated ones. But if there was a parole board that suddenly heard Paul Bernardo come weepingly saying, you know, I've had, I've had clarity, clarity now. I'm so sorry. I've taken courses. I'm taking medication. I've been chemically castrated, all these things. I, I I really, uh, I'm so sorry and if a parole board ever bought that and let him out, somebody would be arguing that the entire justice system needs to be overhauled at that point because they would say, that's in, again, that's insanity. So, it, it, again, it seems like almost we're saying, well, we're not ever going to let you out, but we want to make you believe that you could get out. That almost sounds worse. I, I think it's the, I think in, a, in certain respects, on the what, what are we saying, that the Supreme Court is not saying, but the person is unlikely to ever qualify. They aren't going to do any prediction in that regard. I'm giving you just my sense of how it will ultimately practically play out. It's not, shall we characterize it as the official judicial position. The judicial position takes it to, we feel that it's important within a system of sentencing that we, you know, it's meant to reflect Canadian values and the balances that are allowed and the concept of sentencing to allow for the possibility of parole, period, full stop. All right. There's one more. There's one more challenging part to this, and that we've left that out. We're we're discussing this because there are people upset at this because of what the families of the victims are going to have to go through when someone comes up for parole again and again, and they have to or want to be part of that. But our system doesn't really. Um, it's not the. It's not the person. It's not the victim versus the defendant. It's the crown. You're not committing a crime against the person, even though you do. You're committing a crime against the state, against the crown, which is why we have a crown attorney that prosecutes it. So is there, I know it's sort of a, I'm maybe not explaining it well, but is there even a place for the victim's families to have a say in this? Or should they not be part of this? Because really, technically, they're not really part of this. Well, that's, that's uh, a really good way to identify the differences between sentencing and parole. But I, I think it's certainly valid and appropriate enough to allow victims to have the opportunity to have their voices heard at both stages. But you know what can happen, Scott, is it can develop, I'm going to characterize it as a bit of an un, maybe an unrealistic expectation in the sense of saying um, they're going to be weighed equally. That what, you, what a victim and family might say on sentence 
it's a, it's every bit as important at the parole stage that that it needs to be explained to be able to say, look, at the sentencing stage, the impact of the crime on the victim and family is a significant part of what has to be determined when it comes to sanction, when it comes to sentence, when it comes to punishment. At the parole stage, the way I would approach it is to say, let's not have a false set of expectation and say that it has the same kind of weight, the impact of what the victim and fa- the family of the victim may say at the parole stage, because the issues are different. So there's room to be able to say you should have the opportunity to be heard, but it has to be remembered it's in the context of the issues the parole authority has to consider. And it's so difficult because these issues are so emotionally charged. Yes. And certainly to have sympathy for the positions of families of victims, because if the way they've lost a loved one, you could say reasonably, Scott, it can be, a, you know, the impact is lifelong for them. And when it's as a result of somebody who's convicted of a crime like first-degree murder, it's not a matter of parole and 25 years and so forth. It's forever. So the memories of the individual don't disappear, and the opportunity to try and say, look, we want to ensure that justice is done at every stage we can. Let us have the opportunity. That are, We are there. That's what society will allow for. Uh, but the question then becomes, how do, when, when you have an issue of constitutional challenge to legislation, is that to dominate? Is that supposed to be, well, if that's a concern, that should resolve it all Tim Dance would say yes. That's the overriding, overarching concern. Although I think he has said in relation to this, Scott, the correct approach might be to give the judge discretion. Don't make it automatic. Let the judge decide in a given case-by-case how much longer term of parole and eligibility ought to be imposed or not. So we may find Parliament will review this further and say, since the decision of the Supreme Court, let's take a look again at what we do and don't do with respect to multiple offenses. And Do we want to allow for something else? That may yet occur. For lesser penalties... Their consecutive sentencing still is allowed, though. So I could be convicted of three. If I let's say I robbed three different banks, and on each of those charges I got five years, I could get fifteen years before I was eligible for parole. Correct? Oh, well, never on the parole eligibility, you could get fifteen years. You're eligible for parole after serving a third. But the issue of sentences for three separate robberies, we've got specific finite terms. If they're unrelated, yes, you could get a consecutive sentence for each one, theoretically five plus five plus five. A judge might say just a sec, 15 in total might be longer than we really think is necessary. So you might say, if we added it all up, maybe the number should be 12, and you're eligible for all after a third. When it's a finite sentence, yes, consecutive as opposed to concurrent is always potentially available. Because it goes back to where we started this discussion, and that is it, it seems that the wrongness of this seems in a lot of people's minds, I think, would seem to be that after the first murder, and not that we're in, like m- making it glib, but after you've killed someone, I mean, if I, if I, okay, let's say I kill someone and I'm being hunted down by the police and I realize, you know what, I'm not going to be able to be held. I get my parole. I, and I understand what you said that, you know, they're going to consider this in parole, but why not just kill anyone who's trying to hunt me down to, to, so I can keep getting away? Cause it's not really going to do anything more to me. Remember Scott, the person who's got a mindset to murder somebody, to commit the offense of first-degree murder, doesn't think logically in the sense saying, well, you know, I'm going to look ahead and figure out what the parole consequences are, please. Fair enough. Realistically, Scott, that's not going to happen. I think, remember, that when I gave you the example of 5 plus 5 plus 5, that's fine. We don't have life plus life plus life. We've only got one life. Remember that. That's the core of this particular issue. 
It's a fascinating uh, situation. As I say, it's come back. This happened in May, I believe, that this ruling from the Supreme Court happened. Uh, the This is back in the news uh, because it's going to impact the Tim Bosma situation. Uh, you can read the piece by Susan Claremont. It's in the, on thespec.com right now. Uh, the headline, it's devastating. Tim Bosma's murder is likely to get earlier parole eligibility. Um, it, it's an interesting discussion to have. Jeff Manishin, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Scott. And this is a, what we've uh, discussed tonight is a very, very challenging one because there's so many different components that affect people directly. Jeff Manishin, local defense lawyer. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Okay, good night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.